thank you for joining me for episode 19 of Anatomy of Tone. This week, I'm going to interview J.P. Henry from Henry Amps. He's one of my favorite boutique amp builders. I've used his amps on tour for a number of years. I used to travel with two of them on the truck, one for smaller venues or radio shows that we're doing, and another one for bigger festival stages. And I would just lean on them all the time for a, a good part of my tone. I used pedals to sort of add more flavors if I need more gain or one modulation or delay. But a lot of the tone that I was getting on tour was actually really coming from these amps. So I use them very much like an instrument and they react and, and sound very much that way. You get a sense that they're hand built and somebody with great taste designed them to respond so dynamically and be so rich harmonically. You could check out Henry Amps at henryamps.com and you'll see a number of different models he makes there. He doesn't do exact replicas of vintage amps, which he'll talk about in this interview. Instead, he makes what his idea of an upgraded version of, of what some of the classic circuits would be. In other words, his take on it, which is, I think is really fantastic because there are in modern times some changes that we as musicians need to facilitate the current environments that we're playing in. And, and they're different than they used to be, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Now, JP makes some pretty cool circuits. One he calls the SRT Plus, which is based on a, a lesser known Vox circuit. And there really haven't been a lot of people that have gone after this circuit and really tried to produce it. So it's pretty cool that he's pulled something out from the past that is lesser seen, and but sounds pretty amazing. That's one thing you can check out on his site. There's a link to it there, as well as the ODLX, which is a Dumble inspired amp a 45 plus, which is a JTM 45 inspired, Marshall inspired amp, as well as the Marshall inspired Pasadena Rose, which would be more in the JCM 800 or Eddie Van Halen hot rod amp category. He makes an amp called the Metatron, which is a higher gain style modern metal amp, which is really cool. And he's gonna talk about in the podcast, a collaboration which he has done with FSC Instruments, which I've mentioned a number of times in my blog before because I use their pickups and their pedals, which they've started making, but they also make fantastic hand-built custom guitars, which you should also look into because they're beautifully resonant and very light. The interview goes a little long. I let it roll because I feel like it's so rare we get to find out about the background and the inspiration to many of the builders that are making some of the coolest gear these days. So I felt like as the line was open to communicate with JP, it was nice to understand more about his influences in the process and what led him to end up with the designs and uh, what his tastes were uh, behind making these wonderful amps. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to do a product update. I feel like sometimes I talk about gear and then after I'm using it a while, it's not bad to check in to uh, update. I don't have to do this too often because most of the gear that I'm reviewing on here is typically of a pretty high-end nature and it's really only been a few times I've, I've gotten a piece of gear that I thought was uh, at least lackluster in build quality. Now, some pieces of gear I've tended to personally prefer uh, over others, but usually the companies that I'm inquiring or dealing with are of a, a level that the craftsmanship is, is pretty high. I got a Gator gig bag and pedal board. 
Uh, I like the size of the pedal board. That's really what attracted me to it. And the angle of the pedal board, it was able to fit a Strymon power supply below it. And, and the pedal board was just a little deeper than some of the other small pedal boards. So I got the Gator small pedal board. I think it ran like $110 on Sweetwater. Uh, it just because it, it, it ticked a couple of those boxes. Now it came in like this padded gig bag, which somebody I knew had one. I checked it out. I was like, oh, this is padded. This is, seems like it's pretty well built. I've generally avoided Gator gear because I've always felt that it was a little, I don't know, quality was a little questionable. I wanted to try this and I thought, well, maybe I was wrong by thinking that way about their gear for a while. But after using it for a couple of weeks, I, I, I would report, maybe it's been almost two months now, I've been using the, the pedal board on some gigs. Uh, the Velcro they give you with it is just really cheap and I wouldn't waste my time. I, I, I had to go to Lowe's and buy new Velcro to put on there and I just covered the whole thing in Velcro. They they didn't give you enough Velcro and then the Velcro, the glue doesn't is weak and it would come off if I put a few heavy pedals on there and put it in a gig bag and carry it around, it, it would come off. So that's not a surprise. Sometimes these companies, they ship really cheap Velcro with their product, which I wish they didn't. What's the point? But the other thing is the gig bag, you know, they, the gig bag, the pedal board fits pretty tightly in there, but then there's like a, a, on the inside of the lid, there's like a zipper bag that you could put some cables and stuff in. Now, I, I wish they didn't put that there. I mean, you're going to put things in there because you you need to put some cables and squeeze some stuff into a, a gig bag to go. Now, underneath my pedal board, I have a really long cable that I use on gigs for the power supply for my pedal, pedal board because sometimes you just end up far away from a power drop. Most gigs, they put a power drop near you, but sometimes, you know, like today I did a gig and I had to run pretty far to get my pedal board to a power source. They just did not have a, a power drop. So I always just am prepared for that. So I always have to put a long cable at the bottom of my pedal board. And then I just put a few extra spare patch cables and a, a short a power cable to back up on the, the, uh, the lid, the, the mesh inside the lid. And when I would close my case, I use a lot of um, bigger pedals and not using mini pedals. So it was a little tight when I closed the, the pedal board case and felt a little tight. And the other day after a gig, I happened to notice that it seemed like some of the seams were, were pulling a little hard. And I really didn't say I felt it was overstuffed, but it was stuffed. Well, today, after leaving a gig and walking to the train, I heard this ripping sound. And I looked down and the case split at the seam pretty substantially. It wasn't even like a small rip. It just split open. How I just... It wasn't stuffed that tightly that 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 should have happened in such a short period of time. I just feel like if you're going to make a, a gig bag, pedal board bag, and uh, people are going to be stuffing some pedals and cables, you have a pocket to put cables above the pedals, then you should probably design it so that it's sewn pretty tightly so it can withstand some overstuffing uh, to the point where if you can close the zipper, then it should be able to handle it, you know. In this case, it didn't. So now I'm looking at a gig bag. Really, I paid 110 bucks something for just basically a metal board on the inside of it, which is probably worth like 20 bucks. You know, like uh, it's disappointing. So now I'm gonna have to find another way. I might just get like a suitcase and get some foam and cut out foam and put it in there because it has wheels on it. It ended up being heavier than I I liked, and that was not always the easiest to carry with the shoulder pad. So a suitcase with foam in it and uh, wheels might actually be the the lightest and the most easiest way to go with it because I can just roll it. Anyway, I just wanted to update all of you in case you're interested in buying the pedalboard bag. I have referred a couple people to 
buy it. And um, and if you're listening, then just make sure not to overstuff the bag and it'll probably be fine. Uh, just don't put any pressure on any of the seams. Again, just um, disappointing. So I would caution people in the future from uh, purchasing that. I'm running a back to school special on lessons. So I'm giving a half off on first lesson. If anybody wants to do a trial lesson for guitar, bass, drums, engineering, production, composition, counterpoint, songwriting, uh, any of those things, uh, ukulele, I'd be glad to have a discussion with you. You can email me at anatomyofguitartone.com. Send me a message. Tell me what your interests are and we can set up a trial one hour lesson. Let's start the interview. We're going to welcome JP to the Anatomy of Tone podcast here. Hi, JP. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Let's start at the beginning. And, and um, I know you're based in New Jersey now. Where, where did you grow up? Where'd you come from? I grew up in New Jersey. I was actually born in Texas, in Dallas, but I grew oh. up in Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, totally. Yeah, I know. Everybody kind of like, how did that happen? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> grew up in Jersey, like right across from New York City. So you know, from like the age of like probably 13 or 14, I was hopping the bus to uh, to get and hang out in the village and, you know, go to the record stores and Bleecker Street and all that fun stuff. What age did you move to New Jersey? Oh, I was a baby. Yeah. My family moved when I was really young. So and I still have a lot of family in Texas that I'm close with. So oh, right on. And uh, what age did you get interested in music? Was that something that you introduced as a, a teenager or? Well, my father played guitar and bass and, you know, semi-pro locally, that sort of thing. And uh, my godmother is a uh, classically trained vocalist. And I kind of had a lot of influence growing up because they used to play together at, you know, family functions and things. You know, I remember my godmother playing Beatles songs for me when I was like really little. So I'd say like I always had like a lot of music around me and... I think I took violin lessons in school when I was like five or six. It didn't last long. You know, maybe I did it for a year, just like an introduction kind of thing. Uh, and piano. Um, again, I, I never, piano was, uh, it didn't really come naturally to me or anything. It was always kind of a struggle, but uh, still did a few years of that. And then I think I was 12 when I first said, like, I want to play guitar. Like I was, you know, watching a lot of MTV and, Metallica and Guns N' Roses and all that and just said like I, I want to do that <laughs> so uh you know I knew my dad had guitars so uh I think he had like an Ibanez acoustic that he showed me kind of like the basics on and I kind of just like took that from there and uh and that did kind of come uh a little more naturally than any other instrument it was like I was able to kind of like take that and do that on my own without uh you know without really struggling too much or anything so that was a lot of fun it's kind of amazing how that happens with instruments, isn't it? Like it's, you try a bunch of them and somehow some of them just immediately make more sense to certain people. And, and yeah. Others. Yeah. I think I like guitar cause I could just go to my room with it and like playing piano. I always felt like I was, you know, it was like in the dining room of the house and everybody heard me and you know, my mother would be doing the dishes saying, play that again, you know, and like, no, leave me alone. So uh, right. guitar, guitar, I could take to my room and just, you know, kind of do my own thing and, you know, spend the whole weekend, come out after two days and, you know, have a couple, have a couple more songs under my belt, that sort of thing. So yeah, that was, that How was very much songs at that time. Like, were you, were you studying with somebody or you, you know, CDs, you would just listen to them or your dad would show you or. 
Uh, you know, guitar magazines. That was, uh, so this would have been like 1992, 93, and it was all about guitar magazines because they'd have like tabs in them. You'd get like, you know, four or five songs in every issue. So, uh, and I feel like that was like the real heyday for the magazines because you had like Guitar World, Guitar School, Guitar for the Practicing Musician. Like, you know, you could easily go and buy, you know, save up like 20 bucks a month and go buy like four issues and learn as many songs as I could from them. So that was kind of the way and a little bit by ear. I always did try to pick up stuff by ear. But, you know, I don't know how good I was at it back then. But, you know, I guess it's that's always a good thing to develop for anybody. So, yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. And I always think about that time, too. And it was it was we didn't have YouTube and right. it was uh, it was more challenging because I remember always having to um, use CDs and use the rewind button to like push it back all the time to try to yep. figure out. Every, or <laughs> I also had subscriptions to those magazines, too, because there, yeah. there were a lot of magazines and they, they had great transcriptions. They spent a lot of time doing that. then, And it was great because you could find out like you'd learn some of it by yourself and then look at the magazine and realize you were playing it wrong or. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I remember like, and you'd get to know like which magazines had better transcriptions. Like anything Wolf Marshall did was really, really good. <laughs> I think he right, was like right. the the guitar for the practicing musician guy. And he did a lot of the tab books. Like I was, I, I'd gotten a couple of those. Like I know I had like the, the Randy Rhodes tribute album from Ozzy. I had the book for that. It's like Randy's playing was a, a big influence on me back then. Uh, mm. Cause I was, yeah, I was a little metalhead. Like, kind of had the classic rock thing from my father. Like, he was always really into, like, the Beatles, the Stones, Clapton, that sort of thing. And then, uh, yeah, for me, it was like it started with Metallica and Guns N' Roses. But I guess just due to the friends I had and, and the people I met kind of just went heavier, you know, like really quickly mm -hmm. into, like, 80s thrash metal, Slayer, all that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's where I was at was as a teenager. <laughs> Yeah, that was an exciting time for metal because it was just it was just expanding so much around that time. I remember I was listening to a lot of that music and around a lot of that music at that time too. And there was so many uh, bands like Testament and yeah, um, mm -hmm. a lot of different metal bands coming out. And it was really kind of a pretty cool time period of of, uh, of shift and changes, right? And then I always really liked Guns N' Roses too. I saw them on when they were opening for Aerosmith. Still, they hadn't completely oh, wow. blown up yet. And they were so amazing. Like that first Guns N' Roses record just really had an energy to it, right? And, and the tones on it was really great. Yep, it, it's still uh, it's still such a good record. Uh, later on, I got to work with, um, so I worked, well, fast forward a bit, I worked in recording studios for a number of years and I got to spend some time with Michael Barbiero who mixed that album. And uh, oh. he mixed it, uh, he worked with a partner, this guy, Steve Thompson, and... Uh, they mixed that album with no automation. It was just the two of them at a console. Almost like the mix was like an like a like an art for them. Like it was like a performance. And right. they would they would practice it and they would like make make little, you know, put little pieces of tape along the faders and say, you know, at this point in the song we raise it to here and you know, it was like this planned out thing that they would have to execute. And I feel like that is an absolute lost art. And to, to think that they did a record, a, a record that everybody knows so well was mixed that way just kind of blows my mind to think about now. Very, very cool. Yeah, that's amazing because you realize that some of those movements or, or subtle adjustments in the mix were different each time they did the mix. And so one mm -hmm. something that we may absolutely love or they ended up loving could have been, I'd say, even like maybe a little bit 
to more than they expected or less than they expected as opposed to doing it with your eyeballs or something now with a exactly. DAW, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that I mean, SSL consoles had moving fader autom or the, well, they definitely had VCA automation back then. And yeah, there was probably flying faders for on some boards. But just to think that like they chose to do it or maybe had to do it a different way or preferred it another way and accomplish something like that with it is yeah it's pretty awesome <laughs> did they mix it on an ssl that i don't remember i i, I want to say it was like maybe like an old trident console but mm, uh mm -hmm. i'm just going by memory i'd have to look that up to be to be certain i think they i think it could have been like a trident 80 series or something but um yeah i i'm not sure i'd have to check that out right Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to the idea that the more in touch you are with music, I think the, the, the um, well, it's not necessarily the better result. There's, you can get amazing results in, in different manners, right? But there is something to be said about when you're EQing or you're making adjustments on anything to have your eyes closed or just be have the tactile uh, sure. connection as much as you can, right? Yeah, I think that there is... Uh, uh, how could I put it? You know, stuff like that started out from a musical standpoint, you know, and, and it was that you kind of had to have a, have a head for music in order to really to to do that successfully or at least to, you know, to do what was considered, you know, a good mix, you know, back then. And then I think it really got away from that. Like there was there became more of a divide between the technical and the musical. And when I was coming up in studios, I, you know, it was kind of a bummer sometimes to see how much of like the musical aspect wasn't even considered when we were just doing stuff technically and the whole industry kind of moved that way. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think the guys that the guys that withstood it and the guys that really uh, still do a great job at it are the ones that always kind of kept music in mind first. Uh, but that guy, I think a lot of people lost that. Like that, that was definitely something that, you know, with you know, heavily automated processes and pro tools and it gave everybody Presets, this incredible, right? yeah, it gave everyone this incredible power to do things at home that, you know, previously they couldn't even imagine. But then I think there was something lost in that translation. Like there was like a, you know, sort of the, uh, the original uh, spirit of things kind of got lost in there that like, it is supposed to be about the music and it's not supposed to be about, all this fancy technical stuff you can do. Like I even get a little frustrated now sometimes when people are like, Oh, it's fine. You know, I'll just, I'll just edit the part and I'll tune it later. And you know, it's like, no man, just give me a chance to play it better. I can play it better, you know? And that's, it's like, I'd rather have the ability to perform it better than say, you know, screw it and like let somebody else manipulate it later on. Like that's from a, from a purely performer point of view, that's how I would feel. Absolutely, because I think there's something picked up subconsciously about a great performance and people sometimes negate that with technology and it's almost mm -hmm. like when some people enter into technology now, it's like they, they skip like five or six steps mm -hmm. and that sometimes they don't even know it's not always their fault because the technology is just there to do it. Right. But they're, they're, they have to then at some point, if they're going to pursue this, they have to start going backwards because it's like they're, they're missing. They, they leaped over a bunch of stuff thinking this is great with technology, but then they're, they're missing a lot of like what makes uh, or like the richness or the, the nutrients in, in yeah. the engineering or recording process. No, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, it's like a, sh you know, there's all these shortcuts and uh, the problem is when you start out with, you know, shortcuts are great when you already sort of know the, you know, the initial uh, process. But then when you start out with shortcuts and you never learn that initial process, that's when it sort of becomes, you know, a bit of a uh, sort of a crutch, you know, and you're kind of missing all this fundamental stuff that... Uh, that really used to be kind of like the standard, you know, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And the crutch, eventually that crutch turns into a limitation. You won't, don't even realize that it's, it's there. Right. And you end up yeah, finding exactly. out or you're lacking something. Yeah. And then if you're on a different system that might not have that available, then what do you do? You know, it's like, Oh, you know, I don't know how to, you know, if it doesn't have, I don't even know if they call it beat detective anymore, but that was like the big thing in pro tools uh, for drums, you yeah. know? And it's like, well, what happens if you can't produce something if you don't have Beat Detective? Then you know, <laughs> I'm sure now they all probably have something better. I'm just not as uh, up on it as I used to be. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so, how did you get into engineering? And did, did is is did you like so through high school you were playing guitar and you were into metal? Like, did you get into like recording studios before you got into uh, discovering that you had a love for like building amplifiers? Or what was the whole process with, yeah, with that? It, it, it was pretty cool how it all worked out. So. Uh, when I was really just starting out, starting to play guitar and everything, I Metallica released uh, like a home video of them recording the Black Album. And they were in the studio with Bob Rock and, and Randy Staub engineering. And I just became instantly fascinated by everything in going on in the background of that video. And I wanted to. I just remember like rewinding it and, and rewatching it so many times and thinking, I want to learn everything about it. And so that, that was like the, that planted the bug in my head, that planted the seed. And, uh, yeah, at some point in high school, I got a four track and, you know, learned how to do all that, you know, like a Tascam cassette four track and, and learned how to, you know, do all that, you know, bouncing down and, you know, overdubbing and all that fun stuff. And eventually went to, uh, went to college for sound engineering, uh, at, uh, William Patterson, uh, where I learned from a really, really awesome teacher, um, uh, guy named Dave Kersner, who I'm still good friends with actually has a couple of Henry amps now. Uh, that was oh, very, nice. That was a full circle thing for me when he called me up to order an amp. I'm like, wow, this is cool. Uh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Like 20 years later. Right? But, uh, yeah. So yeah, went to school for sound engineering because uh, I kind of realized somewhere along the way that as much as I love playing guitar, I probably wasn't going to make a living doing it. Um, yeah, like I got to college and realized, wow, all these guys are are way better than me. Uh, actually, it was it was before college. I did a summer session at Berkeley School of Music in Boston. It was like like a two week kind of uh, summer camp for high school guitarists. And I went up there with, you know, all this uh, hope and uh, I shouldn't say hope, but, you know, excitement, you know, about getting up there. And it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. And if they still do them, if anybody is listening to this and considering it, and it was a great time. But uh, I also realized, yeah, I'm I'm nowhere near the top of the heap with all these guys. I'm somewhere in like the middle to bottom you know, in like the grand scale of like, you know, I guess I was like 16 or 17 then uh, of guitarists my age. So, uh, yeah, I started kind of reevaluating like, OK, I'm probably not going to make a living doing this. Maybe I should focus on the engineering thing, which I, I had like a very strong sort of pull towards. So uh, 
yeah, so that pretty much decided I was going to go to school for sound engineering and, you know, uh, just kind of dive into that head first. And so then when you got out of college, you started getting gigs as a, a recording engineer and did you, you came back to where you were from? Um, sort of. I, well, I still, so the school I went to was in, it's nearby. It's actually very close to where I live now. Um, so, uh, I uh, didn't really have to go far for that with school. Uh, actually after it was after two years, I basically completed all the audio, uh, classes. It was like four semesters of audio classes. And I had been interning at a recording studio and interning led to a position there as an assistant engineer. That was a place called uh, Showplace Studios out in Dover, New Jersey. And a uh, pretty cool thing happened there because it was sort of a mid-level studio. We got, you know, they had had some some successful acts. I think a Nirvana live album had been mixed there. Um, you know, Andy Wallace had done some mixing. He, did, he mixed a Rollins Band album there once. Sure. Uh, oh, that's he, cool. Yeah, he did some really cool things there. But for the most part, it was kind of a mid-level studio, mostly local stuff, occasionally like a smaller label project. Then out of the blue, we got a blues project come in. It was uh, Hubert Sumlin from, well, I know you know who Hubert Sumlin oh, is. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hubert came in. It was a tribute to Muddy Waters. And we had a couple guest appearances by Eric Clapton and Keith Richards. And this was back when guest appearances were done in person. So uh, uh, as like a 20-year-old, you know, got to spend a day each with those guys. And, oh, uh, that's cool. What was that, it like hanging out with Hubert? He always just seemed like such a sweet guy. Yeah, he, that's the best word to describe him. He, is, he was the absolute nicest, like, if... If you the room could be filled with 20 other people, and if Hubert was talking to you, you kind of just felt like you and him were the only people there. He really had that sort of effect where it was just like, um, I mean, now you'd call it like mindfulness or something, but like when he was talking to you, like nobody else mattered, it was just you and him. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it was, yeah, it was just a very warm vibe from him all the time. Like he was really just one of the nicest people that I've ever met in my life. Were you aware of his history at that time or being yeah, 20 I, years old? I was because my father had had me listening to the Stones and Clapton. And even though my dad probably didn't know Hubert by name, I was kind of always one to say like, oh, you know, like I remember when Clapton put out that uh, the From the Cradle album in like 95. Like I went through all the songs and said, oh, that's, you know, that's a, a Muddy song. That's a Howlin' Wolf song. Like I researched all mm -hmm. the blues artists that he covered and I remember the Stones always talked about Hubert Sumlin being, you know, uh, Helen Wolf's guitarist and uh, really being the influence. Like Keith Richards always talked about uh, how influential Hubert was to him. And mm -hmm. it, I was a big fan of all those guys. So, yeah, I I remember like sort of recognizing like this is really cool. This is super unique and, uh, you know, really great experience to have had even at that age for sure. That's really cool. And, and, uh, when, uh, like Keith came in, whatever it was, Hubert was there as well. So they were, they were working together. Yeah, they were working together. And I mean, you'd think they were like long lost brothers, the way they interacted. Uh, and same uh -huh. with Clapton. Um, you know, Clapton was a little more businesslike in his approach. He was kind of more like came in, you know, like no BS, let's get the job done, you know, that sort of thing. But he, the way he and Hubert interacted was like, you know, old friends. And, mm -hmm. um, Keith was more like, let's hang out, let's pour some drinks. And, you know, that turned into like, 
you know, there was a bar next door. So everybody ended up at the bar at, you know, eight o'clock at night, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, Keith was more, you know, more more of a hang with Keith, whereas with Eric, it was right. more like a, more like a business type of thing. Yeah, which I think just with where they were both at in their careers at the time, you know, Eric wasn't drinking then. Uh, he was kind of on the straight and narrow and, you know, and Keith was still, I don't know if he was partying as much as ever, but it was, you know, he was still like relatively young. I mean, he was probably about 60 then or, or maybe not even 60. So I think he was still kind right. of going full speed most of the time. Right. Right. Yeah. And cool to see them around, uh, you know, the person who was probably one of their biggest influences, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, there was, so you know, working in studios, you, you get handy with a soldering iron real quick, especially if you want to keep a job or get a job. So, you know, you learn how to fix cables and, you know, all sorts of little things just to be useful. You know, anything, you know, studios generally don't spend money on that stuff. You know, they'll, you know, they'll make their own cables, you know, that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I remember, like, doing, like, so soldering for the first time and kind of, you know, learning how to fix little things here and there. And did they uh, teach you that in, in engineering school when you went to college or that was something you learned on the job? I think I kind of picked it up on my own. I think I actually got like a Radio Shack soldering iron and was like messing with one of my guitars even before uh, I had that job. I'm trying to remember what came first, actually. But I do remember like, you know, making myself very useful as an intern at that studio uh, because they had bought like... Uh, they had bought like a, an XLR snake for like one of their mod, like their headphone monitoring system. And like they needed half of it converted from like male to female. And I was just like, yeah, I can do that. And I remember it like the studio manager was really impressed. So he was like, OK, you know, get, you know, go to Radio Shack, get what you need, do it. And, you know, I did it. I, I don't remember if that's exactly how I got hired, but it was like it, it definitely was like a, a kind of a feather in my cap sort of thing. Um, yeah, right. It was like immediately it's like, whoa, this is some value to have somebody around who can who can handle yeah. these jobs. Yeah. And and also, um, you know, in hindsight, there's uh, there's a benefit to just uh, being like saying yes to things that you probably have no business saying yes to at the time. You know, in hindsight, you're like, man, I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, I said yes and I figured it out, you know, that sort of thing. And I feel like my life's had a lot of that where I'm just like, yeah, sure, I'll. I could do that. And then I'm like, wait, uh, how do I do that again? <laughs> I got to figure this out. <laughs> but that's, you know, the amp thing kind of happened that way in a lot of ways. But um, but yeah, so I was, you know, making myself useful in the studio, just saying, yeah, sure. You know, I, I'll do whatever you need and then I'll you know figure out how to do it later. Uh, and then on that session, uh, actually, there was it was kind of my first experience with any boutique amps. Uh, we had, uh, what was his, um, Lou Rosano, I think is his name, from uh, Lewis Electric Amps. He actually brought amps into the studio for everyone to use. So he had made like oh. a, a Keith Richards model and a Hubert Sumlin model. I think Clapton might have had his own. I think I think Clapton, I remember a road case came with like um, one of Clapton's, uh, I don't know if you remember, he had like a signature Fender Tweed line for a little while. I oh think, yeah, uh -huh. I think that's what he played on that session. Like his, it was like a Tweed Tremolux or something. Um, right, right. But yeah, uh, but yeah, Lou brought all these amps in for everybody to try out, and I remember him being a really nice guy. And you know, I had, I had no knowledge of any of that. I was just fascinated by it. 
And I remember, you know, he popped open an amp and was looking at it. And, you know, I was just thinking, man, like this is kind of not something I jumped into immediately. But, you know, I was like, this is something I want to figure out, you know, for myself later on. And uh, yeah, so that was that definitely that planted another seed in my mind for for the future. Sparked a little interest. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And when did the transition happen into you digging more into those circuits? Let's see. Um, very gradual, because this would have been like circa 2000. So I kind of realized working at that studio that as great as that session was, that was like the anomaly. Like we weren't going to have sessions like that every week. And also it was a weird dynamic where the the owner, manager, and head engineer were all the same guy. So, and he really um, hadn't quite established himself as like a first call engineer yet. So I kind of figured, well, if any good jobs come in, this guy's going to take them because he's still trying to sort of establish himself. Um, so if I want to make a name for myself, if I want to get out there, I probably have to go somewhere where I can be the guy. And right around that time, uh, a job came up at another recording studio called Bear Tracks in Suffern, New York. And that was a cool situation uh, at the time because it was like their longtime assistant was leaving. They wanted basically somebody to come in and uh, take over as an assistant immediately. Like I wouldn't have to do like all the, you know, the whole intern process and, you know, work my way up or anything. It was like kind of just walk into for a 20 year old, what was a, a pretty good job. And right. uh, so I, so I took that and that was great because they, they were kind of the next level up in terms of clientele. Uh, so uh, we were working with, I was there for several years. We did a dream theater album that was like six or seven months working with them, which was a great experience. Um, uh, one of the guys from Spyro Gyra owned the place. So they did an album oh. every year or two. So it was like, that was like a whole other thing. And especially because they own the studio, it was like they kind of expected, even though I was just the assistant, it was like anytime somebody wanted to work, it was like you just ended up engineering by default, you know? So there was uh, a lot yeah, of that. It was like so, being on call, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that that did get exhausting after a few years, but, uh, but it was a great experience. It was like, okay, well, I'm going to get thrown under the gun, you know, a lot. And uh, th yeah, that ended up being a really good experience. Uh, we did, we did, we cut the drum tracks for an anthrax album there. That was, that, those were great guys to work with. That was so much fun. Um, yeah, it was all that happened right around nine 11 and the, the New York studio industry really did slow down considerably after that. It was like, everyone went to Los Angeles to make their records. So that uh -huh. timing didn't work out so well. So it was like things were great for about a year and a half. And then all of a sudden things got really slow, really fast. But yeah, um, yeah. and that was also the, the beginnings of home recording. So I started putting together a home rig for myself and, you know, again, kind of said, well, if I'm going to, you know, I was kind of looking to the future all the time and said, well, if, if I want to stay busy, I think I need to like, you have to kind of keep reinventing yourself in that business, especially at that time, which... I mean, thinking back to like, if that if my first internship was in 1999, it went from like a year of like entirely analog recordings, all, you know, 24 track tape to like a mix of analog and Pro Tools. And then probably by year three, it was entirely Pro Tools. 
So uh-huh, it was really yeah. cool to see that transition happen, you know, was, and that was that was before you could really like Pro Tools was incredibly expensive and home rigs weren't quite there yet. So yeah. you still had to go to a studio and the studio, you know, it became mandatory to have a good Pro Tools rig. That would have been like before HD, like probably TDM was the, was the yeah. rig back mm-hmm. then. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was a really cool time to kind of see that transition, especially looking back on it now. It's like, wow, that was that was a turning point for sure. And uh, yeah, I kind of built up my home studio and then uh, had a decent home studio where I worked with a lot of cool local bands for a few years. And because uh, that that kind of became the next thing was like bands would want to work with me. The studio didn't give me that much of a break on time. So uh, I couldn't really I couldn't get like 18 year old kids to come into the studio to record because they just couldn't afford it. So it was like, all right, I'll put together something at home. And, you know, stuff was getting more accessible. It was like every year computers got more powerful. You know, Apple was in that like kind of golden age for them where, you know, every year they they were going from G3 to G4 to eventually G5. And uh, everything was just getting uh, processing power was just getting crazy at home. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah. And then I would say by like 2005, I realized like the whole industry was then it then it got to the point where every band had their own home studio and they didn't need to even go to your home studio anymore. So (laughs) I know (laughs) So that was like that was like how that went. So by 2005, it was like, oh, man, maybe I should get out of this industry altogether. And yeah, that's kind of what happens. (laughs) And is that and you you realized you had an interest in in amp circuits and stuff. So is that what pushed you into that or was that still later after that? That was still later by this point. I know it's a long story, but uh, by this point, uh, so I had I met like the head of audio at CNBC and I had uh-huh. never really considered broadcast to be a thing. But uh, yeah, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I can mix audio for TV and like it paid way better than music ever did. And, you know, like and nine to five hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like nine to five hours. It was much more. uh I, I would I always considered it like it was more of a human job, you know, whereas the music industry was kind of inhuman at times. Uh, How so, true. Yeah. Yeah. It was like all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's 401k and benefits and overtime. Like, you know, so if I'm here past eight hours, I actually make more like this is killer. You know, right. I remember there's like a protection circuit built in, which just yeah. isn't normally in our business. It's like when exactly. work comes, you just expected to do it until you fall over. It doesn't matter. And for less money. Right. And- yeah. Yeah. For, you know, at the, the recording studios I worked at, you know, one of them never really paid more than like two fifty a week. I, it was like that was like their it was like a retainer. But I think you had to work at least five days to get the two fifty. It was it was weird. And then, the uh, you know, the, the other one, Bear Tracks, was like. 10 bucks an hour maybe. And, you know, there were, there were weeks where I worked close to a hundred hours, but you know, there was yeah. no overtime. There were no benefits, no, nothing like that. And it was just right. like, yeah. Like I remember like being like, Oh, so, and so, Oh, I remember it was CeeLo, the, the rapper or hip hop artist, uh, CeeLo wanted to come in on Christmas Eve and they're like, can you do it? And I'm like, I did have the option to say no, but I was like, yeah, sure. And it, it didn't happen anyway, but still it was like, that sort of stuff Who would come does up all that the time. On Christmas Eve, though, I mean, it's like I yeah. get that everybody doesn't celebrate Christmas Eve, and it's fine. But it's like, but it's like really, you know, can we just like, come let on. people have a day sometimes? It's like, does your does your new single? Yeah, can't you wait till the twenty sixth? Come on, man. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But that's but yeah. that's how that industry was. It was everybody uh-huh. drop whatever you're doing. Mariah Carey wants to come in, 
And yeah. um, I kid you not, Mariah Carey booked a week or maybe two weeks at at our studio and showed up one day for about three hours. But we were on call the entire time <laughs> waiting for her. And it was like <laughs> amazing. And it was she brought her she had her own engineer. And this guy, I'm sure he got paid a great retainer. And he showed up with his own Pro Tools rig and his own tons of gear, basically brought his own studio into our studio, set everything <laughs> up and just hung out. And he would sit there and drink tea and he was just ready to go whenever she decided to show up. And, you know, I remember one time they drove up like like their their big SUV came up and parked outside and she was sleeping in the back. And her manager came in and was like, she's asleep, so we don't want to wake her up. So I think we're just going to turn oh around God. and go home. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, imagine that being like you're you're living in fear of of waking up your, uh, I guess, your client if or whatever you want to call it at that point, your artist. Yeah, yeah, that whole that all that stuff just seems so bizarre to me. And I'm sure if I lived in Los Angeles and worked in Hollywood, it wouldn't be bizarre at all. But it, yeah, to a, just the idea of that just I mean, it seems a so wasteful and be mm -hmm. just the, the idea of not being able to wake up somebody because they're they're so you know powerful or whatever it, that stuff is always sort of the things that always kind of irk me about the um the entertainment industry and godlike status or yeah. so, i mean even the time too how much money was wasted on making records like you didn't it's there's no it costs everybody so much money to book a studio for that much time and not use it you know yeah. it's like i don't i don't know you know it's uh it's it, a lot of um things get or people do things sometimes to, um, I think, bolster their, their feelings of self-importance, you know? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like, it, you know, thinking back to it, you know, there were labels back then. Well, it, it kind of started to go away in the early 2000s, but labels used to put so much money into development, artist development. And that money, I mean, there were so many albums we worked on that went absolutely nowhere, never got released. You know, they would get shelved, the bands would get released, whatever, or released from their contracts, I mean. And that work, even though it seems wasteful, it kept it kept a lot of people employed. Like, it kept studios happening. It kept, you know, engineers, um, you know, it kept them, you know, having an income. And... All of a sudden that stuff started like you think like, oh, this is a waste. But you're like, ah, but it's keeping an industry going. And then you're like, wow, maybe, you know, this might be more than half the time. These projects that go absolutely nowhere actually keep the lights on, you know, so it's absolutely. And I always yeah. thought those were cool because all that stuff is supporting the infrastructure of the music business. It's like, people yeah, are trying mm -hmm. things or trying to see who's going to develop or whatever. And that mm -hmm. stuff, I mean, I, I think probably and you could tell me more, but like probably those weren't the sessions where pro people probably weren't spending two days on getting a snare drum sound on those sessions. Right. No, no, that, that stuff was. Um, yeah, because they're like while there while there was a budget, it wasn't a huge budget. Exactly. So it yeah. would be like, OK, well, we have, you know, you know, maybe we'd spend half a day getting drum sounds and maybe we bring in. Right. We used to bring in a drum tech. I, I met a great drum tech, my friend Dante uh, doing that. And he'd come in and he knew how to tune a drum kit. And I this was sort of the beginning of learning something that I put into my amps now. Uh, it was learning how important the source material is and how mm. like, you know, sticking a microphone in front of something, you know, you really have to have it right at the source to begin with. And uh, the importance of having good quality gear because um, bands would show up with stuff and, 
you know, there's like two approaches. Like some engineers would say, I'll just record whatever you bring in. And some guys could do a really good job of sort of polishing that stuff really well. And then the other approach was, I'm going to keep some good amps and I'm going to, you know, have a good snare drum on hand and I'm going to have a drum tech on speed dial. And we're going to, we're going to set you guys up so that like, you're going to use better sounding stuff than what you walked in with, you know, if needed. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of like two different approaches that engineers or uh, engineers slash producers might take. And, you know, that definitely showed me the importance of like, you know, which amplifiers work in a recording context and how to dial them in. And, and in so many cases, you know, like lowering the gain, people would come in with, you know, Mesa dual rectifiers with the gain on 10. And it's like, okay, let's back that off a little bit, you know, cause these amps can sound good. You just have to give them a chance <laughs> and yeah. Backing off the yeah, that's gain. A funny thing with, that's a funny thing with gain, right? It's like people often think that the more gain it sounds bigger, but there, there's a point of diminishing returns where mm -hmm. it actually starts making the sound smaller and smaller. A hundred percent. It gets super compressed super like um there's kind of like a squishiness that happens mm -hmm. and, and if you're trying to record like a big heavy guitar sound like i remember watching you know john petrucci from dream theater like for his tone he really knew how to dial in his amps for his particular style really well and yeah the gain was never much higher than maybe six or seven on like an old mark 2c plus or it might have even been lower than that on a rectifier it might have been like five or six on a rectifier Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, but he knew like he needed there was a detail that he needed to hear and the detail gets completely uh, washed away when you have the gain up too high and the dynamics mm -hmm. are completely gone at that point, too. So, yeah. Yeah, it was really cool yeah, to work start with some losing of these attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You start losing attack. Um, another guy who was great was Rob Caggiano when he was with Anthrax. Uh, he used a, a VHT Pitbull. Well, now it's now it's Fryette Pitbull. And, uh, yeah, he, he had that amp dialed in so well and it just, it sounded killer. I remember, uh, on the anthrax sessions, Scott Ian came in with, I think he was endorsed by Randall at the time. He had like the dime bag Daryl Randall amp or, uh, you know, uh -huh. some variation of it. And he also brought in one of his old marshals. I think it was like a silver Jubilee from the eighties. And, uh, we tried them all and you know, the, the Randall, it sounded too much like Dimebag. It was like, it, it just, it was too much of a unique sound, you know, uh, would it, you know, didn't sound bad at all. It was just a very unique sound. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of other people did use that amp, but it, you know, that, that sort of became the era when everybody was trying to sound like Pantera. So, mm -hmm. uh, we were like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not a great idea, but, um, I think we used the combination of the silver Jubilee and the, uh, and the Pitbull for Scott, but it was really interesting to see what worked and what didn't. It was like a great, you know, anytime we had like a little shootout like that with amps, it was always very revealing. And it taught me a lot about like, like, oh, I want to, I want to find out what, why did that amp work? And the other one didn't, you know, like that, all that stuff sort of led to me really delving into the circuits later on and, uh, and kind of trying to nail those things I'm like, okay, what's, what worked about this? What didn't? What made that amp get a little too like farty or a little too squishy or, you know, not not hang together as well as it could have. So, yeah, it's really interesting because what that's like the perfect environment to uh, to 
do that and because the microphone is is like a um, yeah what am i thinking about in a, in a lab with a, with a microscope you know what i mean yeah, really it's absolutely a, and you yep. really could hear all the detail and you start really listening to every nuance that every circuit has you know what's what's mm -hmm. how's a silver jubilee different than a jmp or something or you exactly. really start kind of hearing that very closely yeah absolutely uh yeah, it, it really is. It's 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 an audio microscope. That's a great way to put it. And, you know, you get those things under the microscope and, you know, you really start to hear things. You know, you hear the difference in speakers, the difference in cabinets. You know, if you're, you know, even if you're close miking, you could get the room a little bit. You know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's all sorts of factors that go into it. And, uh, yeah, it just how different, different pedals, you know, push amps differently, you know, that sort of thing. And so... All that, even, you know, long before I started working on amps, like just working in studios, all that stuff really uh, started to have an impression on me. And uh, I used to get after, you know, the experience of working on those albums and then working with local bands, I started to get a, a little bit of a reputation for uh, getting decent guitar sounds, especially for like heavier music and you know, I got some work because of that. So, um, yeah, it, it was just like, you know, one of those things that just kept sort of adding up and, you know, uh, yeah, I guess I got away from music for a while when I was working in TV. I, I worked in TV for like over 10 years full time. Oh, and that was like, that was like music became fun again. Cause <laughs> the thing is when you're working in music or working at a recording studio, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really have the desire to do much with music when I wasn't at work. Uh, it was like, I wanted to listen to talk radio and, uh, <laughs> you know, not really, um, I wasn't really playing much or anything at that point. So, uh, working in TV actually got me back into playing guitar and, uh, I had a band again for the first time since high school and, you know, and then it was like the whole process sort of repeated it was like oh i'm in a i'm in a band but now i can afford decent gear and uh that was that became fun because it was like i would did a lot of experimenting with gear on my own at that point um and also like the technology was so much better than you know like all the uh sort of the modeling stuff that you could do in a computer you know like uh, i guess was it the line six gearbox that had like some really cool um some really cool amp modelers and stuff. It was, that was kind mm -hmm. of a new world then because that stuff really hadn't been that great up until that point. So it was really fun to sort of play around with all that. And uh, um, yeah, that it all kind of sent me back into like, then I wanted to just discover, rediscover every, you know, every type of vintage amp out there and uh, all the stuff I had read about in magazines as a kid. It was like, I just was like, oh, look, I'm going to, I'm going to rent one of these for a week. I'm going to rent a Bogner for a week. I'm going to rent this, you know, and just kind of, um, had a lot of fun with that stuff. I did. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting that you did that. That's cool. And that, that's a nice uh, luxury. I think within being in like the New York city range yep. area, right. Is that there were, there were accessibility to places that will rent or have pretty much any amp imaginable if you have the money. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I used to work right down the block from Rudy's on 48th Street, the old, the original Rudy's location. Yeah, and yeah. They, they had that amp showroom for a while up. Uh, it was, uh, you had to take an elevator up to get there, but it was uh, like around the corner. 
And yeah, I'd go, I mean, I'd go there on my lunch break and just be like, what do I want to play today? And like, they, they kind of knew me there and it was like, you know, they knew I was going to like, just kind of hang out and, you know, <laughs> play through something for an hour. They were cool with it. Cause it was like a semi-private showroom. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it was, yeah, that was really awesome. And that was for, yeah, to, to work near a place like that, you know, for a while until they moved, uh, that was really, really cool. Um, yeah. And, you Lunch know, our yeah. research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was so much fun until 40, you know, bit by bit, 48th Street went away. But it was really cool. I mean, sometimes I just go over to Sam Ash and play acoustic guitars for like an hour. Like it was like, this is great. So uh, I feel like all these experiences sort of led me to the inevitable. <laughs> like, like uh, I actually I spent a summer taking guitar repair classes with Les Paul's former tech, uh, Tom Doyle, up in uh, uh -huh. Northern New Jersey, about an hour north of where I am now. And uh, I, in the back of my mind, I was always into vintage guitars. And I kind of thought maybe someday I would do like a vintage guitar shop or something like that. And I thought, well, I should learn how to repair these things because that's an important part of running a business like that. And then I kind of thought, well, I should learn something about amps. I was like, I've always, you know, I've had a hand in electronics. I messed around with pedals, you know, all sorts of you know, when like the pedal building kits started to become a thing. Um, but actually going back to the studio days, I had like a healthy fear of high voltage from the uh, uh, one of the techs at uh, at the uh, Bear Tracks where I worked the longest. Uh, you know, he'd have me do little things like, you know, we would recap, you know, uh, console channel strips and and do that type of work. Uh, but anything like really high voltage, uh, to, you know, tube based stuff uh the tech wouldn't really let me mess with he was like no i'm gonna do yeah, that that's you know? scary yeah yeah because i i've been zapped on 120 volts coming out of the wall and that was scary enough and in my mind i didn't really you know i didn't really quite understand the difference between like ac and dc i mean i knew there was a difference but i didn't know how it felt uh and in my mind i just thought well if 120 volts feels like that i could only imagine what four times that feels like which is what's flowing <laughs> right. through a lot of these amps but I mean, it's different with DC, but that, that's beside the point. Um, I had this healthy fear in my mind of it. So, you know, with pedals, you're just, it's a nine volt battery or maybe 18 volts max, 20. Some of the console channel strips we used were like 24 volts. So mm -hmm. uh, I finally sort of wrapped my head around all that and said, well, I'm going to build an amp from a kit, you know, and it was just like a. Well, I, I think I bought it. It was the Dave Hunter tube amp handbook, and it had a chapter on building an amp. And the schematic he had was basically a, a Tweed Princeton 5F2A circuit. Uh, and uh -huh. I said, yeah, OK, I'm going to I'm going to do this. So between the instructions in his book and I found like a kit, you know, like it was Mojo Tone or something that had all the parts. And uh, yeah, I, I you know. I was nervous turning it on for the first time. I was like, I brought it to a tech to be like, can you make sure this isn't going to like blow up my house, you know, before when I turn it on and uh, yeah, you know, everything, you know, there were some mistakes in it. Of course. I mean, you know, the sort of the tube theory was something I hadn't really learned because, you know, they don't, uh -huh. they stopped teaching that in schools in like 1959. So um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you, you gotta have to learn that on your own if you, if you want it. So uh, once I got around that, then it was like I got the bug big time and it, it became like I just wanted to build everything. I was all my time, any downtime I had at work, I was studying schematics 
And uh, it helped that I already knew how to read them. I had like a basic understanding of them. So yeah, it was really just the tube operation theory that I needed to really drill into my head. And uh, Were yeah, you it was like, like old books, like based on to explain that theory. Yeah, uh, you know, I at this point, you know, fortunately, there's so much on the internet. You know, there's a lot of great resources on there. Um, uh, a guy named uh, Merlin Blencow, the Valve Wizard, uh, he goes by. Uh, he has some great books, uh, but also the old stuff like the RCA tube manual, the Radiotron Operator's Manual. That's all like, I mean, that's where Leo Fender got all his ideas from. And that, that stuff was published because uh -huh. those companies wanted to sell tubes. So they would also sell a book that had circuits that you could build with tubes in it. So the circuits were kind of free game. And it was like, we just want you to buy our tubes and use them. So here's all these ways right. you can use them. And Leo Fender was like, I'm going to use them for these guitars, these these newfangled electric guitar thingies. And were they uh, exactly the circuits or did he modify them? or He just took them and made them. <laughs> oh, he modified them. Um, I, I would say, like, if you go back to the earliest ones, they might be the, the roughest in terms of just like very rough ideas from the books. But, you know, there's there's like an evolution in fender amp circuits and really all amp circuits. But if you, if you go back to like the earliest, like late forties, early fifties, tweed amps, you could sort of follow the progression from there up into the brown fenders and then the black fenders and the silvers. Mm -hmm. And it's, I found that so fascinating where I would, I was printing out schematics and then highlighting the differences. I would say, oh, a 5F11 Vibrolux is like three parts away from a 6G2 Brown Princeton, you know, and like you mm. see this evolution happen and uh, yet blew my mind. It was that stuff just fascinated me. And then I'd want then I'd source out the amps. I'd say, well, I want to go somewhere that has two of these where I can compare them. And so, you know, you start hunting out vintage stores and, uh, you know, some of these places, um, you know, some are more helpful than others, you know, but. You know, there's there's some great ones. Um, Lark Street Music and Teaneck. Uh, Buzzy is a great guy, and oh, uh, yeah, I've heard he, of that place. Yeah, it's a great store. It is a fantastic store. I bought a. Uh, I have my my prized possession is a, a '59 Les Paul Special that I bought there. And, oh, nice. Um, yeah, I, it's a great guitar, and it was just it had a headstock repair, so I got it for a few bucks less than it would normally be, and. It was also before the market was quite as nuts as it is now. So, uh, yeah, now I probably couldn't afford it, but, uh, you know, I'm glad I got it when I did. Uh, but that's a great, great store. And uh, Buzzy's the best. I mean, he's got he's got Dumble combos there and he's like, yeah, you can play through it. Go for it. You know, it's like really, really cool stuff. He almost always has one Dumble on display, which is uh, huh. pretty remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is actually, yeah, because you rarely see them. So it's like amazing that he always manages to, like some people he, just find like a, a pocket and they become one of the people to, you know, to be yeah. known for selling those amps, right? Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's sold, I know like when, when the Rolling Stones come to town, I know Keith's Guitar Tech Pierre uh, visits Lark Street or at least checks out their inventory. And uh -huh. uh, he's been known to, Keith, a couple of his stage guitars came from that store. Oh. And, uh, and there's a few, uh, you know, he, there's a few others around too. Like I know, um, is it no, maybe norms in California. Um, yeah, there's a couple, there's, there's a really, uh, I think it's Willie's guitars in Minneapolis that like all these mm, guys, mm -hmm. it's just like when they play there, the guitar tech's going to go there and he's going to go there with a, a pocket full of cash, you know, 
with, you know, right. looking for some stuff. And I'm, I don't know if Clapton does much hunting these days, but uh, as far as I know, Keith is still always hunting nice guitars and Pierre knows what he likes. So mm, yeah, mm -hmm. some really cool. What, really and cool around stuff. this time, like when you're, you're, so you're renting amps, you're going to stores, trying amps and what, what did you, what sparked your interest immediately? And cause you're really getting into the finer details of, of the subtle, it's interesting that you're saying the subtle differences between some of the amps, we tend to see like, okay, well, the, we see like a completely different look from the tweed to the brown panel fenders. You're actually seeing like the subtle differences in just a, a, some components. So you're also associating these small component changes with very specific sounds. Like, so it seems to me you have a much better idea of like the, the gradient scale of, of a lot of these amplifiers than, than most people do. Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say yes and no. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people, you know, they hear things with their eyes. Everybody hears things with their eyes. There's, it's tough to avoid yeah. that. So I think uh, a lot of people see something that looks different and they hear it differently. And I found that by looking at the schematics and kind of like washing that away, you know, it was really, that was more revealing to me to say like, oh, okay. You know, like I'm, I'm learning some of the little intricities about these and, you know, the, uh, the, the subtle differences that make a difference, how, how the difference between like a 10 K resistor and a 22 K resistor on the, uh, you know, on the power, uh, scale, you know, uh, the difference that's going to make in the preamp voltage and how, you know, how that the, the V one 12 AX seven is going to sound a little different at a lower voltage than at a higher voltage, you know, and mm -hmm. you start to see that and say like, Oh, well that's like the only difference between these models. But it is a noticeable difference, you know, and um, you kind of start like putting all that in the memory bank and saying like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep that in there for the future next time I'm messing with something. And if it's, if it's a little too bold, then maybe I'll soften that voltage lower a little bit, you know? Um, yeah. So you sort of, you know, I, I took a lot of notes, a lot of very sloppy notes that I could barely read these days, but you know, I took him anyway <laughs> and uh, tried to really sort of remember a lot of that stuff as much as I could when I was going through that whole process. What were some of your favorite amps? Um, at that time, yeah, I was pretty obsessed with actually those, the, the, the 5-off-11 Tweed Vibrolux and the 6G2 Brown Princeton. And that led to our very first model, which was the 20T, the Henry 20T model, which was, you know, like a volume tone tremolo kind of thing. And, uh, nobody at that time, nobody was doing that, that I was aware of anyway, it was before the Fender Chris Stapleton reissue. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe like, maybe like Victoria might've had like a Vibrolux at one point, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I, that was just something that I was like, I don't think this is out there and it's one of my favorite amps. So I'm going to mess with that. And then the other one was the 40 T, which was kind of, um, the low power tweed twin is one of my absolute favorite fenders. And, uh, it, I feel like it doesn't get nearly as much love as the high powered twin. Uh, you know, the high powered twin is like, you know, I think Clapton and Keith Richards both used, uh, Keith still uses them. Uh, you know, that's that, that amps a little more along the lines of like a baseman and eventually the first Marshalls. But the low-powered uh -huh. twin is a little different. It's kind of like straddles this line between the older tweeds and then what they later became. It's very similar to Tweed, ba uh, tweed Bandmaster, 
which is also an awesome amp that I love. The only thing I didn't love about either of those amps is the tone stack. It's just the treble and bass tone stack is a little weird. So um, initially the 40T I did with uh, just volume and tone and did a, uh, a tremolo circuit on them and uh, bias tremolo on 6L6s for those. And that was, yeah, that was kind of like trying something a little different. And then I think the one that you have, it's like the 410 combo. Um, yeah, I have two. I have um, the 410, which is like the Marshall and Baseman uh, in yeah. one. And then I have, I think I have a, it's uh, it's it's like a Tweed Deluxe. Um, what is the model on it? It's in the next room. It's, um, oh, the, that's it, the little black one, the Bad Ombre, I think I called that. Yes, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, yeah, those were cool. So they, they were, um, those are more or less prototypes, which was kind of far one-offs, however you want to look at them. Um, the, um, yeah, the, the 410, uh, basement style amp was, it was like an evolution. It was like, let's take the low powered tweed twin. Let's voice one of the inputs a little more like what Marshall did, you know, and keep the other one more traditional. And then I think I had the, I had the basement style or the high powered tweed style EQ on it. Um, the three band EQ which was kind of, you know, like, again, in the evolution of circuits, I think I I would want to think that Leo probably went from the treble and bass EQ to the three band EQ, just, you know, out of probably, you know, demands from players, you know, just finding what works better, you know, model by model. So, uh, yeah, that amp was a lot of low powered tweed didn't have, didn't, it just had a, a tone knob on it. And that's one of the differences between the low powered tweed and the high powered tweed as well. Um, I think the low power tweed, it was treble and bass, um, Ah. from just going by memory. Um, although there were, all these circuits did have variations through them. Um, but the one I'm thinking of off the top of my head had like four inputs. Uh, they were parallel triode inputs, which have kind of a unique sound. And then, uh, they, you know, volume for each and then a two band EQ. And I think... Yeah, I can't. Or I don't. I think the presence was only on the high powered and the basement. But um, huh. yeah, there are so many little differences, you know, in these models because uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, again, they were there was like a constant evolution almost year to year, especially at that point. You know, I I feel like in once they got to like the mid '60s, they kind of hung on circuits for a little longer, like the blackface uh-huh. circuits. Kind of like um, they didn't. Uh, they didn't vary that much. I feel like they kind of all came out in about 1964 or so, 64, 65, and stuck around at least until CBS took over and eventually started doing their bean counting and, you know, make right. made changes based on, you know, uh, whatever reasons they had for it. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like in the in the 50s, those amps were changing like on an almost yearly basis. You know, there were uh-huh. new models. One model would sort of like uh, give birth to another model a year later. You know, that's that's I think how so many of those amps came along because like the basement is more like the lower powered equivalent of the high powered twin in a lot of ways. Huh. Um, and the low powered twin is really more like the tweed bandmaster and some of the earlier tweeds, you know, in that sense. So uh, would you say it's yeah. kind of like a pro too? like it fits in yeah. that category, the bandmaster pro? Uh huh. 
Yes, uh, b uh, the, the Bandmaster, the Pro, and the Super were all really similar. In fact, some of them were the uh -huh. same circuits. I just, uh, I can't remember exactly which ones were the same. But some of them, I think, were the same. The, the only difference was the speaker. You know, the Pro with the 15 and the Super with two 10s. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, and that's the other, our, our 40T model we did with two 10s. And I thought that was like a nice balance between, you know, four 10s sound great, three 10s sound great. They're also big, they're also heavy. So I thought yeah. two tens was like a great way to sort of get into that sound, you know, especially with Alnico speakers. It's uh, yeah, I, lo I love 10 inch Alnicos. I think they're fantastic. I feel like mm -hmm. they're overlooked nowadays a lot. You know, tens get sort of uh, everybody, you know, 12s just became the standard, you know, basically due to Marshall, I guess. Uh, Marshall four by 12 cabinets just kind of became the norm for so long that uh, I know when I was growing up and playing metal, it's like you had to have 12 inch speakers like that was just the thing. Right. You know, it was, yeah, it just became like the thing. And, you know, especially that type of music where you need that kind of percussive, you know, palm muted, you know, rhythm, you know, uh, it, it just became the absolute necessity. It's one thing I thought that was interesting about the um, the, the four by ten, the one you were talking about that mixed mm -hmm. elements from Marshall and and like the high power twin and stuff. It, I, one thing that was cool that I don't see people do very often is that you had so the channels, uh, you could you could blend them in parallel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was something I did. Uh, I, you know, amps with, you know, like jumpering amps with multiple inputs. Like, I just thought like, why not put that on a switch instead? Like one input and a toggle switch. And uh, I don't actually, does your, does that model have a switch or does it just, just have the volumes in parallel with each other? Just the remember. volumes in parallel with each other. Mm -hmm. So yours is just pre, yeah, okay. So I've done some yep. others with like a three-way switch where the middle position puts them in parallel. So you can oh, okay. switch between them. But that, that's sort of, again, like evolution of things. I think that's something I did um, afterwards. But yeah, yours, um, yeah. It just came up. I was like, everybody jumps these things anyway. And essentially, uh -huh. when one volume is at zero, it's it kind of takes away the the parallel jumper effect anyway. So um, right. yeah, we'll just leave this in parallel, and you could kind of play with the volume for each one and blend them together. Um, yeah, I just I remember coming up with that circuit and thinking, yeah, this is. I don't think I'm ever going to want this separately. I think I'm always going to, you know. I don't think I'm ever going to switch between these. It's just, you know, kind of the way I thought about playing through it myself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because it, it was uh, one thing I liked about it, too, is that it was it really opened up a lot more uh, variation in tone. You know, there's a certain rooms you get into and uh, I would blend. Uh, the blends would change from night to night because I was using that amp on tour a lot. And it was just I would I would move them around a little bit just to, to sometimes I want more of the the. Um, full range sound of like the Marshall and sometimes I wanted more of the cutting sound of the tweed sound. And so it was just, it was interesting how I was kind of um, uh, tweaking them to blending them to taste all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could see that being uh, useful from room to room, you know, like, uh, and you know, it's funny you say that because I find some guys get so married to certain settings, you know, that they, you know, they'll mark their settings or, you know, if an amp like if they if they go somewhere with their amp and they have like their settings all all the way they like them and it doesn't sound right, they think something's wrong with it. And it's like, no, you're in a different room. You know, it's yeah. uh, these things it's you're hearing. 
it's totally interactive. You know, you know, even if you're using the same speakers, you know, your the room you're in sounds different. That the sound is echoing off the walls differently. Maybe there's yeah. a rug. Maybe there's not a rug. You know, there's all sorts of things. The you know, what's the ceiling made out of? You know, um, yeah. This is, I mean, the live sound guys probably have the most experience with that. But even going back to recording studio stuff, that's that's kind of where I learned it. And yeah, it's if you get if you get too tied down to certain settings, you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Um, and, you know, you really do have to understand that things are going to change night to night. And I think, yeah, guys, guys that go on the road with stuff like, you know, if they're doing their own sounds, I mean, you know, if, if, it's one thing if they're leaving it up to a sound guy to kind of like make tweaks for them and stuff. But even then, there's probably still uh, there's probably still a lot of variables that you notice as a player in that environment. Definitely. And I think I think the people that are playing really, really arena style, big stages, like there's a little more consistency in those gigs yeah. than there are when you're playing a lot of theaters and, and uh, clubs, big or small clubs, because the uh, the sound, uh, you know, obviously the, the volume that you can play your guitar amp changes from night to night. Right? So it's, it's not like Keith can probably just leave his amps wherever they are every night at whatever volume is, it isn't gonna be an issue. But mm -hmm. I find going through a lot of different venues, it's like sometimes I could push the amp harder than other nights. And so it interacts with the room differently. It's not, it really is not a set it or forget it kind of thing. And, right. Mm -hmm. And anyway, also depending on what volume at, it changes, it changes the emphasis of, of, I find like frequencies on an amplifier, right? And how it's compressing and sure. saturating. Like, so it's not like you just can't really set your EQ knobs and be like, this is my sound. It's not yep. really that simple. I've always felt like what you have to do is you have to really spend time and learn the full gamut of what all the knobs do on the amp so that you can interact with it in, in those instances to get to adjust to the room and figure out how do we get the essence of, of what you love, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so cool to hear another guitar player say that because, you know, I, I don't really put, uh, like dial markings on all of my amps. I, I do it. The, the sort of Marshall style amps, I kind of do something like that with, but, uh, that's more for aesthetics than anything else. But I've had guys occasionally, not, not commonly, or else I might've changed it by now, but, Every now and then somebody will say, well, you know, how do I know where it's set? You know, if there's no indication and I'm like, well, the, you know, just go by the way it sounds, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, this, this is a guy who sets everything by eye, not by ear, you know, and right, I understand right. that, you know, it's not a knock. I mean, you know, some that's just how some people learn to set things. But yeah, I always say like, just, you know, it, it's OK, like maybe maybe yesterday your tone was on five and maybe today it's on six, like that's okay. You know, like that's, that's not a bad thing. Maybe your ears are more fatigued for some reason today. Maybe you need a little more high to cut through. Maybe it's the room you're in. Maybe it's your guitar, you know? Um, so yeah, I say like everybody wants to find the perfect settings and it's like, they're going to change. So, you know, <laughs> let's not get too tied down with that, you know? Absolutely. And I think that's one thing you learn like when you're in a recording sessions or if you're a recording engineer, I come from a recording background as well. So mm -hmm. it's something you learn about placing microphones and just adjusting things all the time. You, you really get uh, put into that world of like, wait a minute, what's wrong with this? And how can yeah. I tweak it? And, and not really getting married to a sound, not getting married to a position that an instrument lives in in the room. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Um, and, and I think it's just understanding like the, the variables, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, there, you know, going back to that world for a sec, it was like 
I remember working with guys and also doing it myself where, you know, if you're, let's say, let's say you record something and then, you know, a couple days or a week later, you want to go back and change something and you want to get that exact sound again, you can drive yourself absolutely nuts trying to do yeah. that. And I, I understand in some cases it's necessary, but in a lot of, I also learned like, it's okay if it's different. Like I had to really like, let go of that. And uh, cause I used to obsess over that. And or even from from track to track, I used to feel like, oh, the drums, do the drums sound better on this song? Why? Like, what did I do differently on this song than I did on the last mix I did? And you really drive yourself. You're constantly, you know, it's like a dog chasing its tail. And I've learned to kind of let it go and just let things be what they are like. Yeah, it's a document yeah. of the moment, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's like this is. This is the way the drums sounded best on that day for that song. And that's what we've preserved. And today, this is how the drums sound best for for today and for this song. And yep. um, and if we're going to do a if we're going to punch something in and try to fix something, it's almost like rather than, you know, yeah, there are circumstances where you you might need to nail the tone exactly. Um, you know, James Hetfield's rhythm guitar, he's going to want that same exact tone, right? Like I I. I could understand it for a situation like that, but for mm -hmm. a, for another situation, it's like, is that really necessary? Like, what if we actually go the opposite and say, let's actually do something completely different there and see if that spices things up a little bit. Maybe that's exactly what the song needs. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's like, a it's just reading Rick Rubin's book where he's like the, you know, any idea is worth trying. And I, I didn't always have that attitude and i think the guys i learned from didn't always have that attitude but uh it's a great attitude to have it's like why not try it you know let's let's try let's try one thing and then let's try the extreme opposite of it and see if we can surprise ourselves you know even if it seems like something that might be uh, a crazy idea i'm a firm believer of that with all aspects of music and i talk to students about that with composition and stuff sometimes too is sometimes people they kind of get stuck in their own little um, box or whatever. Just this is what I do, and they're not. They're not. They get burnt out, and they don't understand why. And sometimes it's because they're not. I don't know. Just being open-minded enough to try mm -hmm. different things, and even things that you would never normally do, just for the, yep. the process of, of the experiment of seeing what happens, right? And surprising Absolutely. yourself. So, like the yeah. idea of intentionally writing a bad song just for experiment <laughs> purposes, you know, like it's like yeah. these things can really inform you a lot for when you are working on something that you really love, you know? Yeah, I, I wish uh, the the Rick Rubin book I mentioned uh, the. Uh, uh, what's it called? The uh, creative way of being or something. It's, you know, his recent book mm -hmm. that came out. I wish I had that 20 years ago when I was trying to produce local bands. Like it's, um, I, I used to have a lot of trouble getting out of my sort of little box and the things that I learned. And, uh, I wish I had that approach, that sort of, um, frame of mind back then it would have been, uh, it would have been, uh, helpful. And if I, you know, I don't, I don't really anticipate doing that kind of work full time ever again, but you never know. And, it is great that there's a book like that out there. And I think it, it really applies to anyone uh, trying to do anything creatively. I could see how, you know, any music student could uh, appreciate some of the ideas from it. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it's interesting to me, like a lot of the things you're talking about, because it, it, it ties in with, the, it, it's making sense to me how it's tying in with your philosophy of making amps. Like you're, you're very creative and you come from a studio background and understanding the variables. And, and I, like, I noticed that and I saw on your website now, with a lot of your amps, you're mentioning that, um, that they're not exact reproductions of, of older amps, right? Which is interesting to distinguish because there are a lot of people and they do it great. They're making exact reproductions yep. of, of amplifiers, but it seems to me that's not what you're doing. You're, you're taking inspiration from very specific amps and then you're, you're, you're creating your own take on it. Like, like the prototypes are the, the one-offs that I have, which are really unique amplifiers. I don't really haven't played other amps that sound exactly like those, you know? Yeah, I yeah, that that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that I felt I had to put up because there are, you know, there's such um, an obsession over, you know, like our 45 plus amp. I didn't want somebody to buy that thinking they were getting like a part for part JTM 45 clone. There are people who do that. There are, mm -hmm. you know, Germino does that, and there are a lot of other really really great amp builders who do the the. Uh, Metropolis is another one. They do really, really killer, you know, one-to-one -one clones of these classic amps. And that's great. There's a market for that. And those guys have it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, they've nailed it. And mm -hmm. I don't really want somebody ordering one of mine expecting that. Um, hopefully, I mean, hopefully they don't. Uh, uh, it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, there is some, you know, we do the channel switching. We do the gain staging, uh, master volumes, effects loops. Um, I, I do my master volume. I use a different phase inverter than the originals. And I know some people think that's like sacrilegious, but it actually works better with our master volume. And mm -hmm. I think that's what doesn't a lot of older marshals. I mean, coming from the factory, they, they sort of shoehorned master volumes in and with the old, with the traditional Marshall phase inverter, there's sort of like, there's an optimal place like you want to have an optimal amount of signal hitting it for it to sound the way people expect a Marshall to sound. And at lower levels, it can be kind of thin. And I wanted to avoid that. And then, you know, so I found the phase inverter that operated in a more linear way. And by I, by utilizing that, I could get the same sound from, you know, one to ten on the master. You know, of course, well, when you get up to past, say, eight or so, then you're kind of entering a whole other realm of output transformer saturation. But before that, right. it's it's a pretty, pretty very the phase inverter itself is operating linearly, whereas uh, in like a traditional Marshall with like a shoehorned master volume, it's not, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's kind of like you're not really getting to the goods till about halfway, which, you know, my my main amp as a teenager was a single channel JCM 800, uh, the 2204 50 watt model. Oh, yeah. And great amp, but you'd have to get that thing up to four or five to really get that fullness from it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they sound yeah. they sound kind of thin before that, and and it's interesting. What's interesting about the guitar community sometimes, and it's not a dig, but it's just I think it comes from us all maybe reading magazines or sort of just fantasizing about the amps our, our favorite musicians played is that sometimes we're not willing to admit the uh, deficiencies in some of the original designs. And I'm not saying <laughs> they're bad, but there there were issues like like what you're saying. It's like it's hard to get a 
a you know JCM 800 up to four or five a lot of times in, in a lot of venues to get that sweet spot. And a lot of times right. people that were making those great records using those amps definitely had them there or higher because mm-hmm. they could. And so if you're not running it exactly in sometimes the, the manner that they were running it, you're not going to get those those exact sounds anyway. But people sometimes just want to know that that it's a like an exact recreation sometimes for for worse even. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I think some people say, oh, I need I need a JTM 45 combo because that's what Clapton used on Beano and I need to get that same exact sound. And it's like, okay, you're going to have to, like, come close to diming it, which is going to be painfully loud. And it's you know, it's it's both a matter of um, getting that output transformer saturation as well as pushing i think he had alnico uh, celestian alnicos in that cabinet they were either greenbacks mm. or the silver alnicos and uh either way those speakers were screaming for life you know totally yep I, and that's that's a whole other thing that is really tough to simulate you know even with impulse responses and things like the sound of a speaker you know screaming its last dying breath is it, it, it's a it's a beautiful sound but it's also really tough to replicate <laughs> and uh mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. and i feel like that that gets lost some people think oh i need that amp i need you know if i just if i buy the 1960 les paul reissue and the uh you know the uh the handwire jtm 45 clone i'll have it and it's like yeah well you also have to prepare to be deaf later in life because you know eric pretty much is these days and uh right yeah, it's like, you know, there's there's there are consequences that come along with trying to nail some of those sounds. So, yeah. So, oh, that's, yeah. so like, again, with our 45 plus, that's why I, I really wanted to come up with a gain circuit and a master volume circuit that could give you that, you know, you can sound like cream at Madison Square Garden at, you know, in your bedroom if you want. That was kind right, of like, right. Yeah, that was the point. So. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I wanted to put a little disclaimer up there just to kind of, you know, our our ODLX model is kind of in the uh, inspired by Dumble category, and I mean the Dumble cloners out there, it, it's insane. With it's like if you don't sound exactly like Robin Ford, you get written off very quickly in that community. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, even the, even though Dumble only made like maybe two amps that sounded like Robin Ford, or you know, yeah. including the yeah, one yeah, he yeah, used, totally. I know. You know, it's like all his amps sounded differently too, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I had to just put that up there. Like, look, you're, you're not getting a one-to-one copy of anything that's out there. You're getting what I think is a nice-sounding version of uh, of that style. You know, that, that's sort mm-hmm. of my interpretation of it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because it comes up a bit in the, in the fuzz world, too, is that sometimes I think people... Um, have a tendency to to they learn enough of what the names of the components are and so then they're seeking uh, fuzz pedals out that have like the exact transistors mm-hmm. or whatever in them and and a lot of that is um it, it's just not enough just to have the the components there's a lot of tuning and understanding and tweaking that goes on and really mm-hmm. it's like what makes the difference between two fuzz pedals with the same components well it's the person making them because they know how to tweak them so at some yep. point you can't just unless you're like a, a somebody that understands schematics or you build amps yourself. You can't just blindly look at that unless unless you're just going for a historical reissue. Which sure, then there's there's companies like Headstrong or Victoria, or whatever they they make mm-hmm. historical reissues or, or, or no, I shouldn't call them reissues, but they one to one remakes, right? Of yeah, of, of, sure. uh, of the exact circuits, and they sound great, but. Mm-hmm. 
you can't just like look at that and, and think of that as being the only like uh, benchmark for what great sound is because people or, or like you are, are now taking those circuits and, and sort of advancing them and maybe fixing what some of the deficiencies are to live in modern times. And you might see, like you're talking about swapping certain parts out where people would be like, what's this? But it, it, it makes perfect sense. And you can't, you have to at some point work with uh, somebody and learn what their taste is or, or their level of sensitivity. You know, every time, like, and no matter what a gig I did with, with your amps, like, if it was um, somebody would always come up to me, whether if it was a different sound person or engineer, recording engineer, because I used them on radio broadcasts and I used them on like um, big festival stages like Mountain Jam and I used them like and uh, all kind of stuff. Right. And, and clubs. So everybody sometimes everyone would always come up to me and be like, what's that amp? Like, that <laughs> sounds really great. Like, what is that? And I was like, oh, check this out. And sometimes I'd let people play through it. And, and it That's just awesome. seemed to come through a thing. And it was like, well, this is not like, it's kind of like a Tweed Deluxe, but it's not. And and everybody was intrigued by it also because it was a Tweed Deluxe basically with three band EQ, which they don't mm -hmm. have, which is immediately more flexible. And and um, and so it's just like, there's um, there's just a level of nuance there that you, you it's important to get, I feel like inside the builder's head a little bit, as opposed to just looking at a parts list on a website. Yeah. Um, it, Great point you brought up and great comparison with the fuzz pedals too, because yeah, I think of somebody like analog man, you know, analog Mike up in uh, Connecticut and yeah, you know, he's, yeah, he uses, you know, he couldn't get those old NKT transistors anymore. So he started offering his sun faces with uh, a variety of different transistors. And I, I have two with different types of transistors in them. And they both sound great. They sound a little different, yeah. but they both sound great. And I trust that anything he puts his name on is going to sound great because uh, he's the one signing off on it. And I trust yeah. his ears. And I think it's the same with amp builders. And it goes back to um, the same with recording engineers and mix engineers. Everyone hears things a little differently. And yeah. I think there's generally a consensus when somebody like an Andy Wallace comes along and mixes all these wonderful, you know, kind of on hard rock metal albums, there's a consensus that his mixes sound fantastic. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with amp builders, I think there's a consensus that, you know, certain, you know, nothing's for everyone. There's always going to be, um, you know, somebody that might not dig it, but, you know, the more popular, uh, companies out there and builders, you know, there's, they're going to make things that sound good to them. You know, Randall Smith made amps that sounded, you know, in Mesa Boogie that sounded right to him. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I like to think that I'm not going to ship something that doesn't sound right to me. And I think, you know, people start to trust you on that and say, okay, well, you know, he's not going to make anything that he doesn't like, and that sort of becomes like a sort of a consensus type of thing where you could really trust a builder to, uh, you know, it's still uh, not every model is for everyone. Uh, but yeah, there's, uh, there's a consistency across the board of like, yeah, like somebody might know what works best for, you know, recording environments and things like that. So, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're, so you're going to get something that, you know, is, is going to sound good for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a very chef-like quality to building amps and pedals and guitars that, that, that I think people, uh, I wouldn't say they don't appreciate enough, but it, it gets overshadowed because I think a lot of people just kind of are, are 
treating music sometimes like a history and almost pretending that every, you know, 59 Les Paul was magic, which it wasn't. And, <laughs> right. and in some ways I feel like gear is more consistent now. Yeah. Like I would, I would bet that all your amps coming out of your shop are way more consistent in, in now 2023 than they were coming out of Marshall or Fender in the heyday of what we consider their prime. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it, especially, yeah, with, with modern components being a little more consistent or maybe a lot more consistent and tolerances being tighter these days. Yeah, absolutely. I would say all that. Uh, yeah, there's some people think, you know, there's some magic in the old components. And I mean, occasionally, yeah, that, that tubes, yeah, tubes were made better 50 years ago, they, you know, cause, mm -hmm. because they were used more. So they had to be made better. Um, now there's three factories in the world that make them, you know, so or maybe even only two factories now. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, yeah, there's uh, it, it's tough to say anything across the board. Like, you know, I think components now are as good as ever. And I haven't really found the need to source out any old stuff. Um, some people really like the older tubes. That's cool, you know. But again, I need to mm -hmm. deliver consistency and I can't rely on new old stock tubes for consistency um just right. because they're you know they're you know they're uh what's the word um you know there's just not an infinite supply of them i mean modern tubes I, I think you know if you buy them from a good source that's weeding out some of the bad apples in the bunch and mm -hmm. you know i've got a couple sources for them and and i get them from mostly the same places everyone else does i don't really have like a like a special hidden place for them it's it's pretty much either directly from JJ um, uh, or Tube Depot or the Tube Store or CE Distribution, which is kind of that's a little more of a, an industry inside place. But uh, still, it's it's pretty much the same stuff. And there uh, it's just a matter of who has what in stock when I need it. And, uh, you know, they're all testing stuff and they all stand behind it. So I know if I get a dud, I just have to make a phone call and it's going to get taken care of. And uh, that's important, you know, that's um, I can't I can't buy, you know, maybe I can get a great deal on a thousand EL 34s from, you know, some random seller in uh, in China or something. But I can't, you know, maybe only half of them will be good, you know, and right. And you have to weed them out. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to deal with that. I'd rather I'd rather spend a little more and buy them from a trusted source that I know is going to do a lot of that weeding out. It's probably going to be weeded out two or three times even before it gets to me, you know, so. Right. So that's good. You know, I'm happy with that. So, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you that consistency, you know, the old stuff is, uh, you know, there's various periods of time where they're kind of all over the place. There are some old marshals that sound terrible. <laughs> there are some that sounds like God's voice, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a, they were factories, and so it wasn't like I mean, you're you're building your amps yourself, and so you're listening to every one set of ears is listening to every amp that comes out of your out of your mm -hmm. shop, and then sometimes it's just oh, somebody had a bad day, or they just that wasn't like their true passion in life, and they just used whatever components they had laying around. So not like they were like let's throw this piece out. They they just used everything. So yeah, pretty it much wasn't like yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't like this. Now it's like you've 
you're really like using a different set of ears and that one hand. And it's like the same you were t- thing you were talking about with with um, with Mike and like Mike is that uh, you know he's it's the same thing. Like it, like I have a couple of sun faces too with different transistors in them. They all sound amazing. And some of my favorite ones are are the ones that aren't the ones that are coveted, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and, um, and I think there's just there's there's a consistency and. Uh, a, a level of uh, of attention to detail that that even though we like to fantasize or or over dramatize the the vintage gear, which I'm not diminishing, some of it is amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Was was a lot more all over the place, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the amps that sound great, you know, you have to realize there's component drift, and you know, even if they measured those components to be exact to the schematic back in 1965. Uh, they might they might have drifted quite far now, and that might be what is preferred for that particular amp. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean copying it will work in another amp, but uh, you know it, it's um, it's not to say oh this is this is this amp sounds great because the components were better back then. No, they're not better. Actually, if they drifted over time, they were probably kind of on the lousier side, you know, traditionally. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> you know, they're probably some old carbon comp resistors that got uh, you know that that took a lot of heat over the years and it had a lot of current and uh yeah yeah so you know they might have kind of gone up in value quite a bit but uh mm-hmm. yeah and it's getting trickier and trickier with the vintage amps now because it's they they they're further and further they're getting older and older and and like you're talking about components drift and things are changing so if you get like a, a vintage you know tweed now it isn't necessarily how it sounded 30 years ago even when it was still vintage at that point right yeah so, absolutely um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I've I found on sessions like most sessions I've done with vintage amps I've had issues I mean and yeah. studios that maintain their amps I'll be like I want to use this Brown Pro you know and all of a sudden like midway through the session the amp is having problems like, no the amp is mm-hmm. working perfectly and yeah. I want to use this fifty nine Tweed and then, oh that one's now acting weird so I have to use a different amp and it's for that reason that I've just always uh, I, I I never tour with a vintage amp. Cause I'm not mm-hmm. usually touring with my own amp tech. Uh, and I, even on sessions, like I, I just, I take a modern amp, you know, I'll take one of your amps. I, I do have a couple of vintage, uh, like a, a, uh, we, we pros like a, the, um, a Victoria and a headstrong. And I'll take some of those if I need those exact sounds or mm-hmm. one of your amps, like the, the four by 10 of yours, I have or the one by 12. And I, because I know it's like, I'm going to go to the session. I know this amp's going to work barring, you know, just something that happens with general yep. amp maintenance over the years, but uh, there's a lot more consistency and reliability there as much as you, you want to go into a place and think like, wow, they have this vintage amp. I want to play it. It's um, a lot of times it's been more problematic than it's been a benefit, you know? Yeah, that's uh, I could totally understand that. And, and, you know, the other thing is that it's very rare that, you know, it, like you said, like a vintage amp today doesn't sound like a vintage amp did when it was brand new. And, most people haven't had the experience of hearing a brand new 1965 amp, you know, that's been sitting in a box for, you know, 50 years. Like um, even, even with like the NOS tube thing, and and I'm not an expert on tube construction by any stretch. And I rely on a lot of other people for this, but you know, tubes that have been sitting on a shelf for 50 years, you know, they don't, they may not sound like they did when they were brand new. Like, so that's a whole right. other thing too. Like, even if they weren't used, just the fact that they were sitting somewhere for 50 years and not being touched is, 
you know, that's another thing you, you can't really, cause it takes 50, it would take 50 years of measuring to know that. So nobody really knows totally. that for sure. Yeah. So it's like, well, you know, is this really what they sounded like when they were brand new or are we already at like a 10% deficiency just from it sitting there, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like physics in right. general. I mean, I, again, I don't, I don't, other people could speak um, more uh, with more authority on that than I can. I'm just going by speculation that I've had with other amp builders, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about antiques at this point. And I've got a couple yeah. vintage guitars that I love, but I don't take those on the road. And, and we're talking about gear that now is, if think about it, if we, think, if, if, we, if we weren't thinking about a guitar amp or guitar, if we thought of something else being that old, we'd be like, if we're looking at a telephone from yeah. 1959, right? Or anything else, but somehow yeah. with guitar, it, it, it's just mythical um, figure. I think just because of the way rock and roll blew up and the way we... Get, we've legend uh, yeah. big, musicians from some of those eras have become like these mythical legends so we attach this gear to it and i love a lot of those sounds but you know it's mm -hmm. like i i think i really appreciate what you're doing with amplifiers and, and taking the, the spirit and, and i think what really works about those amps but making it like well we're in 2023 right now and how do we how do we adjust to the times that we're living mm -hmm. in right now nobody is taking a 100 watt plexi into any venue at this point and diming it you know so um i think that's that's um great um i have to wrap because i have to jump into uh some lessons here uh but i want to make sure that i mess men, uh, mentioned your website which is henryamps.com and uh, and is there anything in particular? I know you're you're working on a collaboration with FSC Guitars right now, which is like a, a black panel Fender can mixed with a Dumble combination. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, yeah. Farhad had reached out to me about uh, he just wanted an amp for himself to do guitar demos with, and and he, you know, he mentioned a Fender Bassman with reverb would be like his ideal amp. You know, blackface Bassman that mm, is mm -hmm. like a 1965 Bassman. So uh, I kind of thought, well. Yeah, 65 basements are great, but you know what's even better than that is what Dumble did with them. <laughs> you know, the the ultraphonics, uh -huh. uh, ultraphonics mods, as he called them. And uh, yeah, so there's so the the straight up clean channel is uh, very similar to a stock. It's it's basically a stock basement with one or two little tweaks um, that that uh, that Dumble did and that I prefer as well. And then. Uh, there's more mid-range available, which I feel like is something most people want from those amps. Mm. And then uh, on top of that, we do the boost circuit. Uh, well, there's a master volume, so you could just crank it up. You could crank up the channel volume into the master and get that sort of sound. And then the boost circuit is separate from that. And that's uh, like a combination of Dumble's preamp boost and mid-boost circuits. It's sort of mm -hmm. the way I like to hear those together which is, you know, kind of like a, a little bit of each blended. And uh, that's foot switchable. And that takes you into, I. that's more of like a tweed vibe, I feel like, like a, like a refined tweed mm -hmm. vibe, not so much the wild tweed vibe, but more of the refined kind of thing. So, and then, yeah, th and there's a reverb circuit in there that's, um, again, it's not, it's not quite as splashy as Fender reverb, um, to me, like the, the, the real splashy kind of trashy Fender reverb is great. Like some people it's, you know, if you're Dick Dale, that's your sound. I get it. Um, it's not everybody's sound. So I kind of like to do a reverb. That's a little, I feel is a little more universally usable. It's a, it's still a spring tank. It's tube driven spring tank. 
but uh, I find it responds more like uh, like a, a good studio plate reverb would, which uh, oh cool okay. yeah a little it's a little warmer it it doesn't get quite as harsh and uh, in an amp like this where it's a blackface style amp that you can push the channel volume um, it it's great because the reverb doesn't get as trashy as like a traditional Fender mm-hmm. would so so yeah something a little different and. Uh, and Farhad was thrilled with it, and he asked if we could uh, if we could basically sell them through FSC as a product. And yeah, it's, it said absolutely. So very proud to have one at his new uh, his new showroom in the East Village, and uh, we've got some combos in the works too. Um, yeah, he's got a head and head and cabinet over there in the showroom, and we're doing a couple one by twelve combos that will also be over there soon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I love the collaboration stuff. It's, I think that's really, really cool and, and creative. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Well, that's great. Well, I, you know, I, I can't encourage people enough to check out your amps. I, I am, I'm a huge fan, and I just think you've really Thanks, have a great taste and ears for it. You know, I think you just, Thank I, you. I find that your amps just like I can put the dials almost anywhere, and they just, they just work. It's like it's a sound, and I think that's mm-hmm. one thing you know. Like I know pretty quickly when I plug into an amplifier, uh, what's behind it in some ways because if if I'm plugging into an amp and immediately um, I, I'm struggling to get sound and I'm turning the dials, if I have to keep going back to it and I keep struggling with it, I just, there's, I know there's something not there. And, and I just, mm-hmm. I could, I could just blindly plug in your amps. I'm going to tweak it to the room, but it just, there's right. a, there's a touch sensitivity. There's, um, there's just a, a nuance to uh, the, the tonality of them, the tone of them that I, I just know, I just turn them on. And if, if it's a throw and go, and sometimes, which it has been on festival gigs where you just, you, you mm-hmm. don't really get a sound check you barely get a line check and you just go uh, i know that every time i've i've used one of your amps like i've just never really had to tweak that much it, it, i can get through it and it just sounds really great and i think that's just a testament to the your your detail the detail that you're taking that when you're making the amps and you're listening to them like it's like you could tell that you're really listening to them before you're just sending them out you know yeah i i really appreciate uh hearing that that's fantastic that's the goal and uh and to hear that that's uh, what's happening out in the wild with them is uh, makes me very happy. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you again for, for joining us. And um, I hope to uh, speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me for episode 19 of Anatomy of Tone. I'll be back next week for episode 20. And reach out if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you have any questions that you would like to have answered at anatomyofguitartone.com. I hope everybody has a great week.